Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a bi-weekly podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranek, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. What do we have up for today, Alex? Well, today we have a great episode. We've got Sean Ward... And he worked on Bernie Sanders' 2016 primary campaigns in four different states, along with Hillary Clinton's campaign in Nevada. Now, Sean is here to share with us all of the campaign dynamics that happened within Bernie Sanders' campaign, as well as the differences between Bernie and Hillary's campaign. Now, Sean, you and I, believe it or not, actually worked together in uh, Pennsylvania on opposite sides, uh, unbeknownst to each other. So I'm really excited to have you on the show. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm really excited to be here and uh, be on the show. Cool. Uh, and so, you know, we just want to like dive right in. Um, what really do you think, um, what did you see in Bernie Sanders? Why did you like him? Yeah, I think that that's a really difficult question um, to answer. I think, like, at least for me personally, um, the reason why I supported him, it was really coming off of the 2014 election cycle. Um, and I was a campaign manager for my buddy, John. And, you know, uh, we lost by a pretty big margin um, where we were campaigning in New Mexico. And uh, the New Mexico Democratic House also um, flipped that year. And I think that, like, my big takeaway mentally was, um, and a lot of folks, was, you know, we aren't campaigning on the messages that we really um, are about uh, as Democrats. Like, we aren't fighting for the things that we really believe in. And we're kind of watering down our message and letting the message be taken over by um, the Republicans. And so like the way I, I approach this is really, um, I think that mentally I was in the state of reacting to the Tea Party movement and the loss of 2014. And I was looking for a candidate, um, who really supported the more progressive side of things. And I thought that that would help with the energy of bringing back, um, like some victories on our side. So what I'm wondering is what is that point at which you realize that Bernie was your guy? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. So I was working in a labor union um, and I was just like complaining about the defeat to my friend um, Trenton and he had actually just come off uh, an organizing campaign in Vermont and he was like, oh, you should really check out this guy Bernie Sanders. And, you know, like I looked at Bernie's website um, and this was before he announced and I was like just thinking to myself, oh, my God, I hope this guy runs for the presidency, you know, like he should be president. Um, so it was actually before like a lot of people got onto him, but it was around like the aftermath of 2014 and the early stages of 2015. Mm. And I think like just also, uh, something that I want to point out early on, 
um, like my political identity came, um, like I really became active and aware of politics um, around the era of the Iraq war. And so, you know, I think that a lot of that could be traced back to the context that he was someone that voted against it. And, you know, that was another time where I saw like Democrats failed, um, to fight for the things that they believe in. Um, and so like, it's all kind of in that context, counterculture, counter Democrat context. Yeah, it sounds like you were looking for someone who had strength, right? Someone who was actually going to stand up for what they believed in. Almost the same thing that a lot of Republicans seem to have seen in Donald Trump. Would you say that that's true, that that was part of it, was just a reaction to what was going on? Like, we need to be strong and stand for what we believe in? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of uh, folks on the Bernie side were probably looking at um, Barack Obama's presidency and wanting more. And I think, you know, like, um, when you look at the reasons why, uh, you know, it's, it's much easier to simplify things, um, and say like, oh, it's because they've sold out, you know, (laughs) than than it is to think through like all the different political challenges in Washington, DC. Um, so, you know, I think that that, like, that's something that resonates on an emotional level. And so, I remember Hillary tried really hard to frame herself as uh, Barack Obama's third term. And how was that? I don't know. How did that not align with you? Or or maybe you had already made up your decision by the time that that she framed herself that way. I think like, uh, you know, I like to be clear, I was actually very excited also when Hillary Clinton announced, Um, you know, like when I remember the day that she announced, I actually took like a long lunch break just to watch her commercial over and over again. Um, So, you know, like it was never really about Hillary Clinton not being a good candidate for me or not being like a uh, like that she wouldn't be a good president. It was just that I I didn't think that she would necessarily be the one to like bring a surge of voters that we needed in 2016. And I think I really did see that the um, the losses that we had in 2010 and 2014, and I saw like a mounting buildup there. Um, so I thought the only way that's going to counter this is, you know, back to the point, if we have like strength in our party. And did the campaign reflect that from you were on the inside? Did you get that sense from from maybe the people who came through the door or the people at the at the top of the ship oh i would well i don't know about yeah i would say at the top of the ship um for you know but i would say more so like the grassroots the volunteers um the field organizers like it was a very emotional campaign um you know, Alex, I'm sure you remember like, well, (laughs) Hillary's campaign, uh, you know, we had a lot of emotions there. But what I mean by that is like, uh, on Bernie's campaign, if you were struggling through the day, um, you know, you would just like talk to someone and, and ask them why they were there. And they would like go through this powerful personal story, um, and just like really go through the emotionally charged stuff. Um, like, I, I was a regional field director in New Hampshire, and I had daily phone calls with my um, team of five field organizers in northern New Hampshire. And there were many, many conference calls where we started off the day in tears because we just talked about like <laughs> the reasons why we we cared and wanted Bernie to be elected. Huh. Um, and some of those things were, you know, rooted in like deep, deep things, you know, like Uh, They saw their parents struggling in the Clinton years. They saw their, um, you know, families still burdened by like extremely high health care costs in Obama's years. 
And so it wasn't just that they like politically wanted more. There was a deep reason behind that too. And I think like, um, you know, that experience definitely carried through. And so how did Bernie tap into that? How, how did he tap into all of those, uh, those emotions and those different reasons that people had and, and amplify that in your opinion? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh... That, that's a really good question. I think, you know, uh, what, what you all are going to dive into, the repetition, that has a lot to do with it. I mean, I think that people saw Bernie and they were, uh, quite frankly, like tired of, quote unquote, being sold out. Um, or, you know, um, to go even deeper, I think that they were still struggling um, in the Obama administration. They were still struggling in Clinton's administration. And so they were looking for something a little bit more. Um, and, you know, I think it was... Both those, like, the fact that Bernie was consistent over so many years that they had trust in him. Um, and I also think that, like, the things that he stood for platform-wise really connected with their concerns. Wow. Now, did that ever backfire? So, in other words, you have all these high-charged emotions that are happening with the volunteers of the campaign and uh, the people that are working to move everything forward. Did sometimes that, do you think that got in the way uh, to allow their head to get cloudy at all? Or was it all a positive momentum? Well, it definitely wasn't always positive. Um, I would say like, a- actually, Alex being on the Hillary side, you could probably speak to <laughs> this more than I could in during the primary. But um, uh, I would say like, Bernie's crowd certainly never got to the level um, that Trump's did. And I know there's like a lot of comparisons, um, you know, and and we could get into that. Um, But like, uh, I I would say that there were some times where the volunteers, you know, you would tell them that at the end of the day, we're all going to be on the same team. So don't go negative. And they weren't like some of them were not having that. Most of them understood like, you know, the common cause and the end goal Um, but there were certainly times when a volunteer had such an emotional experience to it that they were not going to support Hillary Clinton at the end of the day. Yeah. And that's what I found so interesting about Bernie's campaign was that he was able to whip up a visceral, emotional dislike for Hillary Clinton, whether it was him personally doing it or not. The Hillary camp, a lot of the Hillary people really did like Bernie Sanders a lot and, you know, saw him as simply being, uh, an unfeasible candidate, whereas a lot of the Bernie people that I ran into really, really just had that that visceral dislike for Hillary Clinton being painted as the the rich, out of touch um, candidate in the millionaire and billionaire's pockets, ready to sell out at any given <laughs> second. And right. and I really got that in in my discussions with a lot of Bernie people. Yeah, well, and and uh, I'm I'm specifically Alex thinking about the Nevada incident, uh, the chair. Of, like the ch- the chair. Yeah, like t- thinking about a, a time when like it got out of hand. Like I think Bernie Sanders in that room would have tried to stop it. Um, so maybe maybe you could say a little bit about like what happened there. Right, right, yeah, yeah. When uh, when the Bernie people were were losing one of the caucus um, sites. And uh, or no, this was actually the convention. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they were so upset that they had lost um, in the count. At, at, then at the convention, one of them uh, traumatized uh, plenty of the uh, the state party people with uh, threatening to, to throw a chair and, and practically rioting at at um, at the party there. That was, and that's one of those moments where it kind of got out of hand. But I think that 
the the undercurrent i would say comes from some of his um rhetoric later on in the primaries and mm. i really believe that he would have won had he started out attacking hillary the way he was at the end of the campaign if he had mm. done that earlier on um i want to take a second here because i actually have a clip here from the speech that we have from pennsylvania where uh, Bernie Sanders went out on the attack uh, toward Hillary Clinton. Um, we can sort of see some of the verbal techniques that he uses in this, that had he maybe started doing this a little bit earlier in the primaries, it would have been a lot more successful for him. So let's take a, let's take a listen to this. Now, the other day, I think Secretary Clinton appears to be getting a little bit nervous. We have won, we have won seven out of eight of the recent primaries and caucuses. And she has been saying lately that she thinks that I am, quote unquote, not qualified to be president. Well, let me, let me just say in response to the secretary, Clinton. I don't believe that she is qualified if she is if she is through her super PAC taking tens of millions of dollars in special interest funds. I don't think that you are qualified if you get $15 million from Wall Street through your super PAC. I don't think you are qualified if you have voted for the disastrous war in Iraq. I don't think you are qualified if you have supported virtually every disastrous trade agreement which has cost us millions of decent paying jobs. I don't think you are qualified if you supported the Panama Free Trade Agreement. And listen to what he's doing there. He's using repetition and pattern and the cadence of his voice to build momentum and to whip the entire audience up into sort of a frenzy in dislike of Hillary Clinton. And then at the end, he goes and reframes it as uh, he, he, he reframes the whole discussion as in contrast to his own campaign that's actually listening to the people. Yeah. Yeah, and I I remember um, actually being in that room. I was there uh, for that event, and it was, uh, as he would say, a huge crowd. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, uh, I was there with a buddy of mine who worked on the campaign, Lev, and we both looked at each other and we were just like, oh, damn, like, that's, <laughs> that's a new, like, that's new for Bernie. Um, and, you know, I, I think he talked uh, before 
this event and he had talked like since the outset of his campaign and even before that about Wall Street, about some of the issues that he highlighted there, campaign finance, but he had and the trade issues especially that's important to point out. Um, but he hadn't ever really talked like directed it specifically at Hillary Clinton and tied it into her past in that way. So the repetition was there even before he went on the attack. Right. And, and this is like right around the time when he was um, when he was getting a lot more vicious in his his attacks on Hillary Clinton, um, because this is the that debate that happened right before the the Acela corridor uh primaries and they had that debate and i remember in pennsylvania watching that with with staff and volunteers and we're like whoa this is a new bernie sanders this is he's really coming out swinging and uh, it's really remarkable yeah he's really going after her and it's amazing at the different things that he quotes within that it's like you were talking about earlier sean about the idea that Obama could have done better, but because of the political realities in Washington, that it that it wasn't there. You know, if someone has a record like uh, Hillary Clinton has had, then there are always going to be things that you can go after and attack. And so it's it's really interesting how he is. He frames the whole thing of okay, this is how he is different, and. He's really getting into the mud a little bit with that, but at the same time, he manages to stay above it because he's saying, well, I'm actually, they're the ones that are in the mud because they're taking in all the campaign finance funds and because they're big business and because they're politics as usual. Right. And the the thing that really caught me on all this too was just his body language in it. And he does this a lot when he speaks, but when I was re-watching this, he uses his hands Mm-hmm. Almost propped up as if they as if he's an orchestra conductor and he's waving right. them around with his words and sort of moving them very fluidly through the air as if he's telling the audience when to get worked up, when to cheer, when to quiet down. And it's it's really sort of a very uh very visual as well as auditory experience. Yeah, I mean the re- uh, the repetition element was certainly like exciting. That uh, it even came through in um, you know what you're just saying. It came through in his movements and his fa- facial expression. I mean, like you know, I could probably do his hand gestures <laughs> word for word if that makes any sense. Um, and like normally with a politician, if they just keep repeating themselves over and over again. Um, uh, they might bore the crowd, but I can tell you after seeing Bernie speak, you know, a number of times, and it, he basically touched on the same issues with slight changes based on where he was. Um, it never got boring. It was like listening to an old record that you love, you know, it was like mm. seeing him play his greatest hits when you went to one of these events. Mm, that's a really interesting way to frame it. One other thing too, is that this repetition and these, the listing of the facts it almost the facts almost become unimportant at that point too, and and I hate to hate on Bernie Sanders, but this was actually <laughs> the the whole premise of that section of the speech was sort of false. Like Hillary had never actually said that about him, but he's able to list these vague facts as though they are true, as sort of assumptions of fact. When it, it you know 
once you trust him, once you're in that room, nobody in there is actually questioning. Nobody's going and looking up any of this stuff. Nobody's on their phones Googling. They're in story mode. They're in this this uh, passive listening, this almost uh, um, ready for the next riff so that they can get up and cheer again. Uh, was that what it was like? Or you feel free to... I mean, yeah, no, I, I definitely hear what you're saying. Um, and I, I think there are two things that are important to point out there. Like the first thing is, I, I think all politicians, you know, uh, take some... They, they definitely take as much room as possible with the facts uh, as they can, you know? Um, and I would say, like, the second thing, though, more to, like, Bernie's point, um, you know, he he does bring up the facts so much, and he quotes statistics and all these things that would be typically boring, you know? Um, so I think that, you know, there is definitely more trust from his audience because he... Uh, brings up some of those mm. numbers that most people are just like, oh, that's too boring to really um, resonate. Huh. That's an interesting point to explore because you would see Hillary Clinton, who was a very uh, intellectual, by the book, just the facts person who had to learn to speak on a more emotional level. And you get Bernie Sanders, who's able to communicate a list of facts and a list of um, very boring things, but in a very emotional way. I wonder how he was able to do that where Hillary couldn't. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think that that's like one of the things that everyone wants to know. <laughs> like that's definitely a million dollar <laughs> question. I would say something that he did, um, in my opinion, um, really effectively is he would bring up the statistics in a way that was like, you should be outraged about this. Um, and he would tie it back to like, here are the political people behind why this is a thing. And then he would offer up like a personal story or talk about how it affects real world. And then he would talk about his solution to it. So there were like a couple of steps in there, um, you know, and I think it was really like moving through those steps that made uh, his uh, made him successful in his ability to point out some of those numbers. Huh. So the very way in which he presented the information was, in fact, you know, persuasive within itself. Do you think that that's is that something that he practiced doing? Was it something that he was always doing? I mean, for as long as you, you know, have known him or is it something in which uh, is just kind of his natural way of speaking? I think like I think it has to be his natural way of speaking. I think, you know. He's just so good about staying on message. You always knew what he was going to say, even if sometimes <laughs> you can you recite disagree. it by heart. Right. Yeah. Like it was literally like, OK, let me you're re requesting this song. Let me play it, you know. And I think I use that metaphor too so much like it was like playing to an audience or listening to a record because these crowds were so huge and there was such like an energy being played there, you know, Um but yeah, I, I think that like uh, it, it's just who he is. Yeah, so that got him the consistency to be able to have the crowds cheer and boo at all the right moments and at all the right times. But I'm wondering if it didn't also limit him because, you know, if you keep saying the same thing over and over and over again, then the people who already buy into that message are going to buy into it. And then those who don't, for whatever reason that might be, uh, you know, then he doesn't pick them up. Right. Yeah. I, I think that that's definitely true. Um, <laughs> Maybe like more like a more moderate candidate would or, you know, like like we've seen 
you know, Hillary Clinton, for example, or, or really any other candidate, go through their, uh, their their speech where they they name all of the hot issues of the day. You know, mm-hmm. and we care about this, and we also care about that. And you know, Bernie does that, but he's his messaging is very much to the the progressive liberal cause, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the things he says throughout this speech is, "This campaign is listening to." And then he fills in an under what he considers to be an underrepresented uh, group. So, right, you know, young people, minorities, African Americans, Hispanics, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Let's listen to a little bit of that now that we're we're on the topic. Um, let's get into a little bit of the, the those specific moments. Mm-hmm. We have also. We also have to do with the fact that millions of people today are carrying very heavy loads of student debt. Anybody here with student debt? Welcome to the club. And this is what we have to do with that. We have to say to those people with student debt that you can refinance your loans at the lowest interest rates you can find. Now, there are people out there who say, well, Bernie, you know, you're like Santa Claus. You're giving away, you know, free tuition in public colleges. You're lowering student debt. How are you going to pay for it? I will tell you how we're going to pay for it. All of you know, all of you know that eight years ago, as a result of the greed, recklessness, and illegal behavior on Wall Street, this country... This country was driven into the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression of the 1930s. I believe that it is absolutely appropriate today to impose a tax on Wall Street speculation. When Wall Street was in trouble. The American people bailed them out. Now it is their time to help the middle class of this country. This campaign is listening to women. And women are saying that they are tired of working for 79 cents on the dollar compared to men. And I know that every man in this arena will stand with the women in the fight for pay equity. There is no economic reason for women being underpaid. It is just old-fashioned sexism. We will end that. This campaign is listening to our brothers and sisters in the Latino community.
There are 11 million undocumented people in this country. Many of them are exploited because they have no legal rights. They are working for below minimum wage and they have no protection. And many of them are living in the shadows and living in fear. I agree with the Latino community. We need comprehensive immigration reform and a path towards citizenship. And if the Congress of the United States does not do its job, I will use the executive powers of the presidency to make it happen. This campaign, this campaign is listening to our brothers and sisters in the African-American community. And they are telling me, how does it happen that we can spend trillions of dollars fighting a war in Iraq that we never should have gotten into But we don't apparently have the necessary funds to rebuild inner cities throughout this country. And so that was a pretty long clip, but there's a lot there. Mm-hmm. He does sort of what Taylor was talking about, doing the uh, hitting on all the major points. So getting to every single constituency, every single issue. What I find interesting is the ways that he talks about each mm-hmm. group. Yeah. Right? Yep. He starts off with the student debt, right? Anybody here have student debt? And it's a loaded question. Of course, they're all going to say yes. And then he does the makes himself affable and disarming by, by saying sort of welcome to the club. And we all know that humor is like a really good way to build a strong rapport with somebody. But he says, welcome to the club as though he's part of the club that has student debt, which is a little, <laughs> a little absurd, but it, it, you know, it blows right by. But then he starts having a conversation with a straw man about how to pay for it. Mm. So he, he says, oh, and then they'll say, uh, Bernie, you're like Santa Claus. You're just giving stuff away. And then he has an argument about making the, the um, billionaires and millionaires responsible for it. But the thing about it, listen to his words. He switches from saying, uh, you know, talking about other people with student debt to saying we, we, mm-hmm. we. And he's using the royal we to talk about right. um, student debt and, and, and listening to young people. And that's what I find really interesting is that he, one of Bernie's challenges was that he's old. <laughs> and how does he relate to kids these days? Well, he spends a lot of time on their issue mm-hmm. he associates with them in his speech right in ways that he doesn't associate maybe with other demographics right and he's using those hypnotic devices you know he's, he's throwing in that idea of you know he says this campaign is listening to and then he fills in the blank now notice he doesn't say i am listening to he says this campaign is listening to And then when he's having the conversation about the student debt, he says, we have to say to them, 
This is all unspecified, by the way, like who is we, who are the, who is the them. We have to say to them that you can refinance your student debt. Now, really, the question is, does him saying it actually mean that it's true? Well, there's there's kind of a logical leap that that's happening there. But it's all brilliant. It's, it's all really good uh, persuasive techniques. The other thing that I find interesting, right, is that Bernie Sanders' strongest groups, um, white men and young people. Mm-hmm. And, of course, who is going to feel the most connected and the most close to him? White men, of course, because he's a white man. And young people, because he's using a lot of these techniques here talking about the student debt and young people's issues in a very collective fashion but listen to when his speech turns to talking about women latinos and uh and black people it's very vague it's very short it's one little touch and it moves on and so right it's also like rather stereotypical like uh, Latinx people deal with a lot more issues than that, and African Americans deal with a lot more issues than the the inner cities fixing up the inner cities, mm. and so it's a little more stereotypical. And I don't know, I, I I sort of wonder if that contributed, or at least maybe didn't help his deficiency with those groups. Yeah, I I think that that's exactly right. You know, um, uh, we we were talking about like the handicap of being repetitive and and having strong language and i think really the handicap is that uh bernie didn't really listen or at least his campaign didn't um you know it was consistent it was a strong message it was always on message but that means that the message didn't change much um i remember uh my volunteers in new hampshire frequently like said you've got to tell bernie that he's got to like change how he's saying this uh and you know, of course, I didn't have that power at all to tell Bernie <laughs> what to do. But I'm sure that there were people much closer to him saying, like, you should rephrase how you do this. You should do this. Or, you know, not just telling Bernie, like telling campaign management um, to change. And the fact is, like, I don't think that they necessarily necessarily listened because they were just so convinced that their message would carry. Um and a lot of confidence in their message. And I think that that's especially true when it comes to issues, um, you know, around people of color, um, more marginalized groups, um, you know, that he didn't really go into communities, um, you know, and, and most candidates don't, um, but and ask, like, what are your issues I'm here to hear? It was more, let me tell you about my issues and maybe sprinkle in how they affect you, but mostly like talk to you about these issues within your community. And like you said, you know, when he talks about um, Latinx voters, I'm sure he could have, why didn't he discuss student loan debt and how that would affect the Latinx community? Right. Uh, you know, why didn't he talk about healthcare and how that relates to our inner cities? Um, right. You know, instead he talks about criminal justice reform um, for African-American voters. And when he's talking to um, the Latino community, it's like, oh, it's the farm workers. Like, not not to say that those aren't important issues, but he never really was able to connect how, like, the intersectionality between his issues and the different constituency groups. Right, because it seems like during the campaign, every conversation that I had with uh, with a, a Bernie person would be, uh, I would say, well, you know, his message doesn't really he's not really talking about ideas that affect uh, minority groups. Mm-hmm. And they would say, 
well, if only they listened <laughs> right. to him, right. and if 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 only we had a minute to explain how mm-hmm. these issues affected them, then they would understand and they would be a Bernie supporter. Right. And I mean, they kind of have a point. The thing was is that I don't know if anybody was was really doing that or uh, doing it in the same ways. You can have the greatest message in the world, but if it's served up on a trash can lid, not to say that that's what this was, like it's nobody's going to, they're not going to bite. Right. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And and I I definitely saw that in the campaign too. And I think, you know, uh, maybe it doesn't, maybe it does. Um, I think the intention there is we're coming from behind, you know, like, Bernie hasn't reached that many voters before this year. Hillary Clinton, on the other hand, has reached voters for years and years and years, you know, so people need to like hear Mm -hmm. his message to be able to be persuaded. I get that, but I definitely think that there like that there was some, um, uh, you know, I I think that the way that it was done was definitely um, unintentionally racist or maybe even intentionally. Oh, wow. Huh. Yeah. What do you what do you mean by int- that's that's interesting. What do you mean by intentionally? Um, so, uh, you know, and this happens in a lot of campaigns. Um, I I think every campaign that I've worked on, uh, where uh, people of color are sometimes tokenized, uh, and I think like you uh, put sometimes like internally within campaigns. Too often than not, I've seen staff members who are put into certain positions because of. Um, what they look like uh, and not necessarily who they are. You know, if you Mm -hmm. happened to be someone who is really good at labor politics, like you have a labor background um, a lot of times, you know, but you also happen to be, um, you know, Latino. Uh, A lot of times a campaign will put you in a Latino community rather with uh, than you know, at the table with labor leaders. I think Mm -hmm. that happens a lot where people are kind of just tokenized in campaigns and it's a disgusting practice, Um, you know, and I I would say it happened on Bernie's campaign and it certainly happened on Hillary's campaign. Oh, yeah. A hundred percent happened on Hillary's campaign. You you remember our political staff in Nevada. (laughs) Yes, I do. so this tokenization of of the people i mean what what's what's the positive intention of it of what it's supposed to be and then what what does it end up being i don't know what i i can't really answer what the positive intention is i think at the end of the day like what do they think they're doing yeah i mean at the end of the day they're just thinking like oh the best person to reach this community is someone from their community and we want to win right um, huh. And like, that's a double edged sword. I remember on Hillary's campaign, Alex, I'm sure you remember this discussion, um, um, you know, over a couple of tiki drinks, I'm sure in, in Vegas, <laughs> um, you know, there was question over where, whether or not I could be the um, deputy organizing director of um, the fourth congressional district in Nevada, because a significant chunk of that um, was in an African American community. Um, and it was like, oh, well, you can't have a white guy organized in this area. Uh, so, and it definitely happens with people of color where they're held back from promotions and campaigns, um, because they're in a community where, you know, we, we need an African American guy or girl, you know, or woman or whatever. Right, right. Yeah. They get pigeonholed where, you know, I've got a lot of really talented friends who can do a lot of other things, but because they are, uh, basically a a minority in a highly needed like 
minority group, they're pigeonholed and they the only jobs that they can get are, say, Asian outreach right. or, you know, Hispanic outreach or whatever it is. Right. Um, I think that there was there's no surprise for why I got interviewed for New Hampshire and South Carolina and ended up in South Carolina. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Uh, it, it's really interesting. Um, and I, I really think that it goes on in every campaign. It's something that is controversial. I don't really know what the solution is. Um, and I can sort of see how I wonder, was it worse on the Bernie campaign or was it better? Well, I think on the Bernie's campaign, you know, um, we we were basically uh, we were basically built to win two states. Right. We were basically built to win <laughs> Iowa and New Hampshire because those two states, if we didn't do well or win, um, were that was make or break for us. And so then after the New Hampshire primary, where we did extraordinarily uh, well, you know, we had a very, um, very talented team there. Um, we went on to basically uh, the rest of the map, not having the capacity. Um, so I think that people got pigeonholed um, a lot on Bernie's campaign because we had to scale very quickly. Um, I, you know, and I don't know if it's true in primary campaigns in general or not, but I would say that that's kind of my perception, um, you know, take it for what you will. Um, and you know, the solution, that's another topic, very off topic, but I think that that comes from the workers, not the management. Yeah. Me meaning like the workers organizing together, but again, don't want to get into that subject. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just it's it's interesting because you have someone who's such a progressive candidate and, you know, this question that Alex just asked about, you know, is it better or is it worse? And, you know, I think when you have someone talking in such generalities and such, you know, artfully vague type of language, you know, like Bernie has done, like Obama did, like Trump, you know, is doing and like Hillary tried to do, you know, when you when you have that you know, that type of thing, then people kind of paint themselves into the picture the person is describing. They assume that mm. all of their values are going to be reflected the same way based on the language and how it and how it is. And, you know, my takeaway from this discussion is just like, well, OK, but maybe it doesn't actually work like that on an applied practical level. Right. Maybe it, it you know, maybe uh, even though you can talk a big game, there are still things like this that are happening, you know, even within a campaign of someone who is notably progressive, you know, the most progressive candidate out there for the Democrats. It's like, how does that happen? Right. Yeah. That's a I mean, now we're getting into the hypocrisy of political campaigns, which is <laughs> yeah, well, an entirely <laughs> that is a, a can episode. of worms there <laughs> right, yeah. where, you know, camp, campaigns get up. The candidate is talking about universal health care while their workers don't have health care or they're talking about, you know, pay equality when they're not paying anybody equally. Yep. Or they'll talk about, you know, uh, racial issues. And meanwhile, they're they're pigeonholing their staff. <laughs> right. This is, yeah, it's uh, I don't, uh, and maybe unionizing is the answer, uh, <laughs> which is what Sean was hinting at earlier, <laughs> um, and, and that's a, that's an entirely other can of worms. Yeah. Uh, well, right I guess I, I wonder if this is if this on a small scale was why on a bigger scale that Bernie's message wasn't getting around to all the people he wanted to get the message around to like the mi minorities like the um, uh, the underserved populations that even though he was naming them, 
you know, maybe the message wasn't getting out there because, well, yeah, he's progressive, but is he out of touch? I mean, does he not actually know what uh, young people or minorities are actually, you know, going for? I mean, here we have an old white guy, right? Like that's, that's who he is. You know, is, is he out of touch? Um, oh boy. I, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. Alex, how would you answer that? I mean, of course, I would say yes. Um, <laughs> I think that it's he's he's somebody who and, I you know, this is an issue with a lot of the Democratic Party is that we end up with a lot of very progressive people who talk progressively. Mm-hmm. And, I, and when I think about this, I think of maybe the 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 straight white male campaign worker on a political campaign who is speaks progressively and is for the right causes and fights and fights and fights for you know the right reasons and the right causes but then you know give him a drink and he's uh, sexually harassing somebody or he's you know making lewd comments about something or, or there's a racist comment comes out of his mouth um, after hours and it's it's sort of that sort of um, an undertone that I see from a lot of people who were attracted to Bernie Sanders mm. or maybe through some sort of uh, of uh, rule of attraction to the man himself. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, at least from my standpoint... I, I don't think that Bernie necessarily listens, but I also don't think that he's out of touch, if that makes any sense. Um, I, I, you know, I think that he, uh, I think that he does have a really good finger on the pulse. And I think um, that he does uh, say things that a lot of politicians don't say that really goes to the heart of, of a lot of folks. Um, but, you know, I don't think that he's someone that necessarily listens, um, you know, and I certainly don't think that he thinks about intersectionality uh, the way that he should. But he certainly had good instincts. That's the great thing about it is that, like, yeah, he said the same thing all the time and had um, and didn't really listen. But you know what? He was right on the money about a lot of stuff. And a lot of people really liked him. Uh, for that and he was able to speak to a large swath of people um and that's what i think was really remarkable one other thing i want to get to here is another quote he does right at the beginning of his speech that i really just found really interesting maybe on this this topic of trying to appeal to a large group of people um let me play that here and we are addressing the real issues facing our country All of you know, all of you know that truth, whether it's in our own personal lives or politically, is not always pleasant. But you don't go forward if you simply take reality and you bury it under the rug. You got to deal with it, you got to address it, and you got to resolve it. And that is what we are doing in this campaign We are asking the hard questions, and we're coming up with the real solutions. And now that right there, it sounds really great. It sounds like they're really, you know, going to solve a bunch of stuff. But what did he actually say? 
Like, think about it. Go through his words logically. All of you know the truth, whether it's in our personal lives or politically. What? (laughs) But what it does there is it allows the listener to color in whatever they want to believe about him in the campaign. They can pick any issue that they want. They can pick, you know, he says personal lives. What what does that mean? (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And somehow that, that that relates to the country on a larger level, that this country has the same problems that you deal with in your personal life. And you're going to solve the country's problems the same way you do with your personal problems. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take all of your problems personally. I don't know. That's what I read. Yeah, he has a really great uh, part there at the end also where he's talking about he's using the uh, adjective noun, adjective noun thing, you know, the hard questions and to solve the real issues. So when he emphasizes those two you know, points, uh, it's, you know, hard questions and real issues. It has a rhythm to it. It has a cadence to it. And it almost doesn't matter what he's saying that slips into the person's mind just because just based on the way in which he said it. Yeah. And and I would also say, you know, just tying in what we said earlier, I think that, uh, he is very vague in this statement, uh, here and you really do, you're able to insert whatever you want to there. Um, you know, I, I think that I remember this going back and I was thinking about campaign finance, but it could easily be translated into other issues, you know? Um, and I think, you know, what we said earlier is true. He was known for using numbers. He was known for using hard facts and it allowed him to be vague in other areas. Yeah. And it's really interesting because he also makes it very personal. So listen to his, his, his words maybe in the clips that we played earlier. But one thing that he constantly goes back to and he repeats this over and over and over again throughout his speeches is he says the words, I believe, I believe, I believe. But he says it very distinctly. Mm-hmm. He says, I believe, I believe. <laughs> and he with a totally hand gesture. Right, up in the air and very specifically demarks that, uh, some might say anchoring that. And then what's his campaign slogan? A future to believe in. Mm -hmm. And I find that just, it seems like a little bit more than a coincidence. Oh, well, there's definitely things in which he has has rehearsed and put in there that he's been, you know, either uh, planned to say or that he's he's been suggested to say. Sean, did you find a lot of the things he was saying were kind of like little um, bullet points or little talking points or little phrases that he would say again and again and again, other than just issues, but like actual phrases? Yeah, I, I there are so many. And, uh, you know, I could have probably named like all of them uh, when I was on the campaign, but I believe was definitely there. Um, yeah, like I, I, I think that you know, even just his, like, the top one-tenth of one percent, you know, um, just, like, the quoting of the statistics and the different ones that he would throw out, um, that was definitely something that was was there as well. Um, or what was the average donation to his campaign? <laughs> right, $27, <laughs> right. Uh, Which, at know, some point, was no longer the average donation <laughs> size, but he kept saying it. <laughs> right. It sounded good enough, right? Yeah. That millions of, when millions of people come together, 
the political revolution, you know, I, I think like the political revolution, uh, and like, uh, that, that's definitely something too. Um, and like, uh, just the counterculture to his entire campaign. You know, when I think about his volunteer base, I think of two very different crowds. There were people who became politically active, um, in the Vietnam war era, uh, and just got disgusted with politics because they saw like a lot of disenfranchisement. So you had like activist oh, types from point. that era. Um, and then you had a lot of activist types that came off of, um, the Iraq war and you had activist types that came off of like the Occupy Wall Street movement and some of the other movements in between. Um, and I think that people like were very frustrated. So it brought in this like large swath of it extreme uh, extremely frustrated people and the campaign was just vague enough that all of them were able to find their common ground uh you know oh. and when you're thinking about things uh you know it's not just like i think the the future to believe in thing that's certainly there but i really think the political revolution piece was the the powering piece in his campaign because these folks you know a lot of them saw a failed movement, you know, um, or a movement that didn't work out the way that they intended it to. Um, and so like, what do you do when, uh, with that, like, you know, well, politics as usual didn't happen, uh, didn't work. So what do you do? You uproot it, uh, political revolution, you know? And I think that that really ties in with all of the shots that he was able to fire, you know, and, um, and just like a big theme in his campaign. So when we talk about political revolution and then one of his platform ideas that was very controversial, the democratic socialism, right? Like, do those two things go together? Because we still see that, you know, coming through with, you know, people that were uh, with Bernie, like Ocasio-Cortez and, and some others, right? Like, was that is do those two ideas belong together? Absolutely. I, Absolutely. Yeah. I, I like, uh, you know, I think a lot of folks who came to the campaign felt like the system wasn't working for a very personal reason, um, you know, or maybe it was just like political philosophy, uh, in both instances, probably. Um, and uh, I think that like uh, when when they saw like his his discussion about um, socialism and being a democratic socialist, you know, and his ability to connect that to other countries that are doing these things, why can't we do them here in the wealthiest country on earth? Um, I certainly think that there is a connection there. Right. And so getting back on this, on the revolution idea here is that what, what do minorities and people of color think about when they hear the words revolution, hmm. right? It's not a very pretty picture. And that's what always, you know, struck me is that, hmm. is that, it almost implies violence mm. and who's the first to get shot in any horror movie. That's a great right? point. That's a really, I'm African American. So yeah. <laughs> just for the listeners out there, but I mean, but that's the, it's, that's the type of thing, right? That, that type of thought that you're just presenting here, Alex, like that's the type of thing that when we're talking about, okay, Bernie Sanders and who he is and his, cultural background and things like this like he wouldn't necessarily think about that and i think it's the same idea of the democratic socialism like i know that a lot of people i talked to did not like that idea and mm. there are definitely people who are mm -hmm. you know middle-aged and older who do not want to have anything to do with socialism 
oh, they might agree with universal health care or, you know, that health care is a right or something like this. But socialism, that's a step too far. And so is it possible that his his uh, strong perceptions actually didn't um, quite pan out to all of the groups that he thought that he was speaking the same language to? Yeah, I don't know. It's it's really interesting. Um and, and I don't have the right answer for it um, because, you know, he did perform really well in rural areas. Um, so to speak to like the age gap, you know, I would I would think that um, that that has something like a data point there. Um, but, yeah, I think that, Alex, your point is interesting, too, about revolution and and what that implies. I certainly think, you know, his stronger terms um, in general, were both an asset and a liability. That that's without, you know, I could say that without any hesitancy. Um, but what do you mean? Say a little more about that asset and a liability. Well, you know, again, when you hear democratic socialist, you know, uh, that's for a lot of people. They're like, wow, he's he says what he believes in. You know, he's not a candidate that's going to lie to us, um, and he doesn't back down. That's great. Uh, you know, for the people who can listen to what he actually means for that. But there are certainly large groups of people that don't want to hear that, you know, that hear socialists and get turned off. Um, yeah, to go on this point is I was, uh, a story I frequently tell is when I was in South Carolina um, for the primaries, I, I ran into my neighbor one day and we were good friends. We had been out a couple of times together and talked politics. And he says to me, hey, you know, you know, I really hate all the Democrats, but there's this one guy, Bernie Sanders, that, you know, I could kind of see myself voting for. Mm-hmm. And he's a pr- I, I would consider him a pretty low information voter. Right. And uh, he was never Trump and um, and generally support the Republicans. But he says, you know, what? I could I could probably support that Bernie guy. And I turn to him, of course, <laughs> putting on my my Hillary hat. And I say, did, what, did you know that he's a socialist? And he says, what? Really? (laughs) No. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, go look it up. And then the next day I run into him again and he's like, oh, yeah, I looked up that Bernie guy and you were right. He is a socialist. I can't vote for any of them. Oh, Alex, Alex, Alex. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, uh, everyone's got a campaign and, uh, you know, when they're in the midst of it, you do what you do. yeah, no, I think it is really fascinating. Uh, it's uh, we could spend hours just thinking through some of this stuff, and certain things they it was bizarre how they played um, to different audiences. And I do think that it's important to point out um, the comparisons also between Trump and Bernie. You know what? There there is a good clip that we have in here that I want to play for uh, sort of tee up this topic. Yeah, that'd be great. Now, I know there is a lot of concern about the candidacy of Donald Trump. So let me assure you, Donald Trump is not going to become president of the United States. He will not become, he will not become president because the American people will not elect a president who insults 
Mexicans and Latinos who insults Muslims and women who insults veterans The American people will not elect Donald Trump president because they understand that what this country is about is bringing people together. Our strength, that is our strength as a people in this arena. There are people who come, whose families come from hundreds of countries. We are different colors. We are different religions. And that is our strength as a people coming together and coming together always trumps dividing us up. Yeah, so wow, what we hear here is this strong thematic messaging, right? So Bernie, you know, Bernie's got that ability to uh, be able to really communicate at that very emotion-based, value-based level. And I hope that the repeated listeners of this podcast are actually beginning now to hear the, as we're going through all of these different speeches throughout many different politicians, um, to actually hear the commonalities and how this is how this is done, you know, I've talked before that one of my favorite, um, very artfully vague statements is the American people, you know, and mm. and Bernie starts this off with this, right? So the American people, they understand now. When he's talking about they, who exactly are we talking about? Are we talking about the people at this rally? Are we talking about the people outside? You know, are we talking about a Trump voter? Right. Who are we talking to about? Um, they understand this country is about bringing people together, our strength. These are all these liberal um, kind of value you know, points that he's checking off. We are different colors. We are different religions. And that is our strength as a people coming together. And then he repeats coming together always trumps. So now he's starting this thing that I think Hillary Clinton did this uh, a lot, too. She was using trumps as a verb. So this mm-hmm. trumps that. So he's saying coming together always trumps dividing us up. Now, what you're hearing here is a motivational system. So in other words, he's saying the positive thing and he's associating with him and what he is saying in his thematic elements of a speech. And then he says Trump's name as a verb and then immediately <laughs> launches into the negative, which is the opposite of what he was saying. So he gets them feeling all good. And then he goes, Trump is dividing us up, basically. Right. That, that's what he's doing. And so he continues to, uh, to, to go along that way. And, um, of course, I really like this part of the speech where he um, says that Trump will not become president. <laughs> that was the best part. <laughs> you know, he says those type of value-based words, and what that does is it's lighting up certain regions of the brain associated with those value-based words. And then as it lights up those regions, immediately after the thing that you say after it is getting connected. So... You know, the saying in neuroscience is that, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together. Neurons that fire apart, wire apart. So Mm -hmm. when we're putting two things and we're firing them together like that, we're actually wiring them together in the brain, creating an association, 
classically conditioning a stimulus and a response, just the same as you know a dog salivating at the sound of a bell. So that's that's what I would call it. You know, it, it, it's almost like uh, when you say that, I think about Tony Robbins, the great motivational speaker. And what he does is when he's talking about all of these positive things, building the, the group up into positive, positive, positive. And then what does he do? He says, and I thank God. And then he takes his fist and he right. smacks it against <laughs> his chest. Yeah. God. Yeah. Yeah. And I thank God. So he's taking all these emotional things. Hmm. And then he's associating God and these positive things with himself for the viewer to see. And that's sort of that, that's what I'm reminded of here. Yeah, he's he's not the first one to do that. There are some people within the religious community who just might have done that before, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so. So, yeah, he definitely does that. And, uh, you know, Bernie does, uh, you know, something very similar, I think. And, but that brings up another thing, too, when we're talking about Trump and Bernie, is that while there are a lot of sort of uh, there's a lot of contrast to the two of them, there is a lot of similarities. We've got and I've said this on previous episodes, I still think about them as being two sides of the same coin. They're tapping into the same emotional spaces, really same trying anger. to gin up that that fear and that anger mm. and that you know, hatred towards something. In Bernie's case, it might be the millionaires and billionaires uh, and the status quo. And for Trump, it's the, you know, Latinos and the Mexicans and the, you know, uh, you name it. They use a lot of the same tactics. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, they really do. And and so that, you know, it's really interesting to be able to analyze it from that way because I think a lot of voters will or you know even non-voters they will they'll hear a message from someone uh who they like from a particular politician and they will assume that it has something to do with what the politician is saying that the platform the politician actually has but when you have people like Trump and Bernie okay two sides of the same coin we quickly realize it's not actually about their platform it's about the way they present their ideas mm-hmm. and so what do people see in Trump authenticity cutting through the politically correctness, being able to tell it like it is. What's the same thing they see in Bernie? All of that, right? It doesn't mean that's what they're actually going to do, but that's what they see. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I, and I think that there is a lot of connection, um, at least in some of the outcomes, you know, uh, I think both were very energizing for their side. Um, I think that both of them, there was groups of people who didn't have a place in politics that found one because of their candidate, right? Um, I know a lot of people came to me on Bernie's campaign and said, I gave up on politics because, you know, um, uh, because the Occupy Wall Street movement didn't uh, succeed. Or I gave up on politics because we didn't get universal health care when Obama had, uh, you know, both the House and Senate. And I'm sure that, you know, on the Trump's campaign, that saying, uh, that's, the, you know, that saying that those same words were probably said, I gave up on politics and it just happened to be for some awful reason. <laughs> but, you know, mm-hmm. I, I feel like both spoke to very marginalized people, um, you know, within their own base. Uh, now, one actually spoke to more marginalized people. Uh, I think that that can't be <laughs> overstated. And I really, you know, um, I have an issue with like, 
I, I think below the foundation of the comparison that they're very different. You know, if you le- look at what they were speaking to and what they were trying to accomplish and even the way that they were doing it, I think that it's different in my opinion. Um, but Alex, I'm curious to hear your thoughts and Taylor also. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, I I take a look at it more from, like, the tactical level, right? You remember when Bernie was going through the primaries and it became clear that in some states you had to be a member of the party to vote Mm -hmm. and (laughs) or you had to register before a certain date and there were all these rules and there were all these regulations and it led a lot of his staff and advocates to scream that the election was rigged that the that it was all uh it was all stacked in favor uh of hillary clinton and against bernie and yeah there might be there there is some truth in that sure but as far as you know what you see especially with trump later on in the general election or even during the primaries he was screaming about the primaries being rigged (laughs) and then in the general he was saying if i lose it's because everything's rigged there still does even if the election is rigged (laughs) even if it actually is like unfair and the cards are stacked against you you're undermining the greater ideal of preserving some sort of uh, faith in the electoral system and some sort of legitimacy to the process that i think right or wrong both candidates use that tactic. Sure. And I think I think what I meant, like, uh, you know, I do think it's important to, like, step back. And especially with, with um, this podcast here, we're trying to be analytical. Um, and I, I think the point that I'm trying to make is for a lot of the things within Bernie's platform, the people that uh, were disenfranchised that he spoke to or um, at least disengaged from the political system, I think that they were... Uh, disengaged because they were like, well, I haven't seen anything in politics affect my life, you know? And so um, a lot of the young folks, for example, um, you know, they had student loan debt problems. So when they saw a candidate speaking directly to that, I think that like that was a motivating and energizing factor. I think that there were policy points behind what he was saying um, that energized them. And I think like on Trump's side, it was more about the language. And I think on Bernie's side, it was about the connection between the language and the platform. Wait, but uh, you know, I still know. I, I don't know if I totally agree with that because if you, A, you're absolutely right. He, both candidates did energize sort of people who, um, were not traditionally part of the political system in the data. Mm-hmm. Trump won the general election because he turned out people who had never registered to vote before who, you know, just so happened to be white. Mm-hmm. And Bernie got a lot of young people and people who felt disaffected to register for the first time and to get involved and to, and to get active. I think the point at which we come to a divergence is that whether the actual marginalization was real or imagined. Mm-hmm. And in the, fa- in the case of Bernie... All of these people, the the minorities and the young people were, I think, in reality, marginalized. But Trump's people felt equally as marginalized. They were the people who saw all of the gains 
with uh, maybe more diverse groups and and felt as though it was unfair toward them. They can't get into an elite school because of affirmative action. They can't get a job because uh, all the Latinos are coming across the border. Or they they watch their evening news every night and it talks about all of the gun crimes in their community and they live in fear every night of, you know, black people shooting them um, through their, you know, living room wall. Right. (laughs) whatever it is it doesn't matter whether it's a real marginalization it's that they felt marginalized yeah yeah and i think that's that's a really uh significant kind of way of looking at it i think that with any political campaign there's a tendency to fall in love or hate with Mm. the different candidates so you know i think it's really easy to go well you know bernie's the good guy Trump's the bad guy, like especially, you know, recently it's like, okay, no, Bernie's good. Trump is bad. You know, we do not want to, you know, support, you know, Donald Trump. Um, But ultimately, you know, one of the things that, you know, we've been talking about here for a while is just this idea of how we are all being influenced. We're all being influenced, like we're being influenced by the news, we're being influenced by politicians, we're being influenced within, you know, campaign staffers are being influenced within campaigns, you know, uh, you know, toward a particular outcome or toward a particular goal. I think that if we really want to put an objective measure on it, we would need to look at the policy. And really the question is, okay, does that policy... Is that something that's actually going to benefit your life specifically or not, or the lives Mm -hmm. of people you care about or not, um, you know, or the country as a whole or not? Um, Because really, you know, we can get so caught up in do we like this person or do we like, you know, I mean, I'll say this about Bernie. I think his his suits fit better than Trump. But, uh, (laughs) you know, do we do we does he wear suits? I. I thought all he wore was the blue shirt. <laughs> he, he, he does have some pictures of suits. And, you know, he probably, you know, doesn't cook his burger well done and, you know, probably doesn't eat as much ketchup <laughs> and, you know, stuff like this. And, you know, we can we can get, you know, so tied up in that. And, you know, really we need to go, OK, is what he's standing for, you know, is the, the policy, the actual policy going to be a good thing? And it's not just that it's. Does do they have an ability to implement it? You know, do they have Wait, an ability to create consensus and make it happen? But this is what I love about you know now all of these news stories being run where they're interviewing like the the new cool thing is to go out into Trump country quote unquote <laughs> right. interview some farmer who the tariffs are affecting <laughs> right. uh, and whether or not they still support Trump or they'll they'll go to factory workers and uh, whose plant is closing and they're losing their job because of Trump. And they ask him, hey, what do you think of Trump? You voted for him. And they're like, yeah, I still support him. I think he's got the right thing. Everything will turn around. And he's he's he really is going to uh, make everything good again. And it's just like there's some sort of cognitive dissonance there. Like you are losing your job right now. <laughs> your farm might close. <laughs> right. But like you're still so connected to this individual. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's fascinating how people kind of get, you know, wrapped up around it and they, you know, they put their trust in in something. Right. So if, you know, they're religious and they put their trust in God, but in place of God, there is the president or in place of 
whoever the highest person in place of the the father, right? So there's it's not a coincidence that people say my you know our father or my father, right? Like and it is a fatherly figure. And I think in Trump and in Bernie, people saw that fatherly figure in, in both of them. Yeah. And, and you know, going back to what you said, like talking to someone who's literally losing their jobs because of this politician's policy. I mean, that's real political power. Um, and, and something mm-hmm. that I think is really interesting is so much of um, the discussion posts like you know, the um, presidential election in 2000 and 2004 um, was about, you know, in in every election is how relatable is the candidate. And even the 2008 primaries, you know, between Hillary and Obama Mm -hmm. is how relatable um, is the candidate. And, oh, the candidate wasn't relatable enough. That's why they didn't win. She was likable enough. Right, right. And uh, when you get into, like, Trump and Bernie Neither of them are like people that you want to sit down and have a beer with. You know, that sounds is a Bernie lover. That sounds exhausting. You know, (laughs) it sounds like one of the worst drinking partners in the world. But I do think you'll only talk about one thing. (laughs) The top one tenth of your beer is foamy, Um, you know, but I do think like there is something still there. Both candidates, um, uh, to, you know, the the people who, you know, said, oh, I had to step back out of politics because the candidates don't fight for me. Both spoke to their base and related to them because, oh, sure, he's not relatable in like he doesn't share my life, but he's relatable in what he says, you know, and, and he's not the kind of Washington person to sell me out. I think mm-hmm. that he's just as angry about the same things I'm angry right. about. He takes this just as personally as I do. Right. Yeah. And I, I yeah. think that that's like and what's so interesting, you know, for both of them, too, is, um, you know, they don't go back to their personal story at all. You know, like um, right. Secretary Clinton was very effective at going, um, you know, and talking about some of her personal stories. And, you Obama, know, Obama, definitely. definitely Bill Clinton, you know. Um, but both Trump and Bernie, uh, you know, really never got into personal story at all. Bernie did try and highlight other people's stories, um, you know, but that wasn't necessarily like a powerful piece for them. And what's fascinating, like I said earlier about being on the campaign there is so much of, uh, the ins and outs of the campaign were dictated by personal story. I mean, if you needed to work, uh, you know, a little bit more in your day, you would call your coworker and hear why, like, a powerful story they heard that day or why they're in it. Like, it was really built off of personal story. And I think it's really interesting that both never really talked about themselves. And very intentionally, too. I would remember hearing stories about people trying to nudge Bernie into talking a little bit more about himself, and he would refuse. Right. And he didn't like talking about himself and his his family or or, or anything really. And Trump, for obvious reasons, doesn't really want to talk about his personal story or family. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there might be some reasons there. <laughs> he could bring up Stormy. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, I think that uh, oh, I I feel like we could talk for hours uh, longer about this, but I think we're about out of time. I want to thank you, Sean, for coming on. Uh, this was a fascinating discussion. I think um, it gives us really a lot to chew on about what actually makes a persuasive politician. Yeah. Well.
thank you for having me on. And uh, just one last plug, look up the Campaign Workers Guild if you want to hear what I was alluding to in uh, previous conversations. So thanks, everyone, for joining us for another episode of Subliminally Correct. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to go to iTunes and rate us on iTunes. Five stars is always a great rating. Write us a review there and make sure to contact us on Twitter. So if you really enjoyed the show, please retweet this. Um, Let us know what types of topics you'd like to see on the show, what types of guests you'd like to see. We're having a lot of fascinating political discussions, and so if you'd like to chime in, we love your feedback. And if you really enjoy the show, remember that you can scroll down through the show notes, and there's a link there for the Patreon page. That's right, the Patreon page. For as little as one cup of coffee, you can support the show all the way up to actually being able to pay for a month of our server fees. You know, we really, really appreciate your support, and so please go and do that. And until next time, we look forward to seeing you then.